Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Simon Indelicate, a member of the English band The Indelicates, among other things. We will discuss his new albums, Arcadia Park and Starfield Lounge, as well as his view on the economics of the music industry as reflected in his essay, Why Your Music is Worthless and How to Sell It Anyway. So welcome to the show, Simon. Hello. It's so cool to have you on this program because I've been a fan of the Indelicates since like 2008 or something. Um, And I hope I'm the only law professor to have actually named one of my articles after one of, one of your songs, new art for the people. Um, So I'm delighted to have you on the show to talk about your new, your new work. That's fantastic. I, I, I love, I think that's the thing we've always had with, we're a band who are, massively unsuccessful but on a global scale <laughs> we have one person per city it makes sense like, we can watch it on the google results when they come in it's like oh yes we've renounced a new album and there'll be like one from every city in the world lots and lots of cities but only one person <laughs> <laughs> well as long as they're a really big fan you know that could well i mean you'll, you'll get the, the 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 message you get is come to brazil and you're like no <laughs> unless you unless you're willing to pay the entire plane fare for one ticket which is the only one we'll sell which is you but <laughs> well so you've always been an incredibly prolific musician and recording artist uh, i know that this last year has been even more more prolific than usual and you seem to be going in a really kind of interesting new kind of concept album direction um you know i really loved your album david chorus superstar which you recorded several years ago and i get the feel that some of the new work that you're doing is picking up on some of the kind of aesthetic themes that you were you were playing with in that yeah i think that's right i i I suppose there's a kind of all the stuff i've been doing these last couple of years during the pandemic has been kind of born of um obligation necessity and circumstance in that we have two children um the other the other singer in the band or the well, the other co-creator of everything the, that's under the indelicate's name is julia who i'm married to and who i have two children with um they're quite young children they're six and two so they mainly prevent us from being in the same room working at the same time so what we would normally be doing which is making in the albums between the two of us where we have lots of singing has kind of been a bit impossible um but i do pay um, a company to distribute an unlimited amount of music to digital streaming services and i'd noticed i hadn't really been using that so i thought well i'll just make loads and loads of albums this year so i started i started making like i was doing like ambient so i kind of was, i thought well, i'll make music that i actually listen to as opposed to indie rock which i have kind of ruined for myself by seeing too much of it um so i think there comes a point where you've seen enough bands you just kind of just i'd never want to hear that <laughs> so what i tend to listen to at home is like weird ambient things and and theme park soundtracks so i made a few weird ambient albums and then well and then I thought, well, I could just make a theme park soundtrack for an imaginary theme park, which is where I wish I was rather than sitting at home doing this. Um, so that kind of came together. And so it is And, and I, what I really like. And I, this will probably, we'll probably come back to this later. But what I really like doing when you make a record is just everything around it. Like I think the, the cover and the 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 artistic milieu, like the product itself is is the art, not so much the music. And so I've got, well, if I'm making an imaginary theme park, I can really start to commit to that 
fairly stupid idea. Um, so I got the company that makes the individual ride tickets. I've got them to print me some individual ride tickets that are on sale and, and saw that. So, and I, and I, and I love the idea of something being almost perfectly meaningless as a piece of art, like you're kind of trying to strip as much meaning from it as possible. Um, and I think a theme park soundtrack almost, cause it's like, it's like corporate art, I suppose in a way it's got no, it, it's like, it's all sentiment, but no feeling. Um, and so I was, I was trying to go for that. And I think you kind of sneak feeling in through doing that. So yeah, that was, that was kind of the idea behind it. It's just, it was just the thing I felt like doing. And then I just got far too into it and spent months on. Well, so, I mean, this album, the theme park album, Arcadia Park, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the composition process and the, the different songs that, that are on there. Because, like, my, my take on it, listening to it a couple times through, was, like, you know, you've got this kind of kind of epic cheese ball like anthem for the park itself. And then these really kind of, like, as you say, really kind of interesting, weirdly ambient and I can't, t- like, there's this fine line for me between, like, the music that you heard in real spaces in the 1980s. And it's like, it almost feels like what you've composed is like that, but more so. Yeah. And then, and then, like, also a, a, a bit of like a kind of a flavor of a, almost like a video game or like arcade sounding kind of quality to it as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I suppose there is this. I mean, so you start with the the idea of well, I'm going to make an imaginary theme park album, and there are, and I do, and I do genuinely like theme park music albums, and it's particularly the Efteling in Holland has, has very good music, um, and there's that kind of sort of whimsical fairy tale quality. Actually, there's an amazing album by a woman called Susan Vaslev, who is the daughter of the owner of a park in what's the one in North, um, either. North, in the northwest of America, there are those two states, Washington and um, what's the other? Oregon. And it's either in Oregon or Washington. I can't remember which one, but like, and it's this park in the middle of nowhere and th- th- they own it themselves, but they do all the music themselves and she's made it all. And it's this beautifully composed, but very sort of lo-fi synth sounding album that I bought. And it's, it's, it's a great record. And I, I kind of, oh, that's a complete tangent. Um, but I think just that sense of that you get, there is these sort of hallmarks of, theme park music which are like first of all it has to be it's sort of pure ambient as it's designed to be in the background and I, I like that but then also there's these kind of retro futurist ideas that off, especially like the kind of Epcot Center that kind of thing where um it's all about progress and that's quite a poorly defined concept but it's just like no where mankind is is moving onward and we're just going to celebrate that in its essence and I like the idea of just writing writing music that just celebrates the abstract idea of progress without having to commit to any part of it and, and has almost no um, discursive element at all. And I think that reaches the best point in that record that, that I've made is that there's a song which is the only one that's sung, which is um, it's called One World, open bracket, where dreams take wing, close bracket, kind of referring to George Bush's Where Wings Take Dream. And I wanted, I, th- I did think Where Wings Take Dream, but then I was like, no, it's, we'll just stick to what he was trying to say rather than what he actually said. Um, and that's kind of all these sort of just sen- it's just all sentiment about you know this is the world's going to come together as one and it means absolutely nothing but it sounds very emotional. Um, and then there's a thing that happens in well it happens in a lot of Disney things where like they'll suddenly cut in inspirational quotes from important 20th century figures, 
and I just I just thought, well, I'll just get some of those. So I've got um, nothing to fear, but fear itself just comes in. And then um, Kennedy talking about art being the great leveler. And then just for no reason at all, there's um, Oppenheimer saying, I've become death, the destroyer of wealth. And it's just, it's like, I don't know why that's correct, but those are the correct quotes for that moment. And you do get a feeling, even I, knowing that I've done it, got to get a feeling of like, ah, oh, I'm swooping, I'm committed to progress. And then like, I don't know what. And we sent it to my my mum when we sent it. And my mum was, she was really she was like, ah, oh, it's very moving. And I was like, it isn't. <laughs> it's not moving. It's the opposite. <laughs> but I like that. I like that it's um. That's the aspiration is to be extremely moving, but for, for no good reason at all. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't, it's really hard to explain why that's a good idea. But for me, that's just exactly the sort of music I wanted during all of this. I mean, it totally worked for me and I got it right away. And I was just like, oh my God, it's so, it's so terrible that I love it. Excellent. Excellent. That's exactly correct. I mean, I also, the other thing I like to do is what I've always thought that with the Indelicates, what we do with each album is we take our remaining audience and then fraction them out. So we had the first album and then there were some people who were into that. And the second album was like, okay, you like that. But maybe about half of you will like this. And then each time we do it, we just cut that fraction more and more till eventually there'll just be like one guy. And he'll totally get it, but that'll be it. Because, because we you know it's I, I can't I can't stand it. Bands just you know give people what they want. <laughs> You've got to be like, no, no, okay, okay. We're doing a David Corris album now. That's what we're going to do. And if you like that, the next one's going to be nothing like that at all. And and I think I'm just as I've gone increasingly mad, locked in my house, unable to work with Julia because of children. I've kind of I'm just going I'm just trying to whittle it down more and more. So it's just you, right? It's like the Zeno's paradox of music publishing. That's what right? it is. That's what it is. <laughs> well, so you, the album is like the soundtrack for this imaginary theme park. And you've even got like ride names or like location mm-hmm. names for each of the track. Did you like, when you were composing it, did you like kind of imagine the theme park and what like each location would sound like? Or how did you approach? Some of them are very specific. So like there's one called Enigma 23, which is specifically a B&M dive coaster, right? In the style of uh, Oblivion in Orton Towers. But you know, so it, it, it's... um. A roller coaster which, which which pauses at the top of a vertical drop, then goes down, and then does like two inversions, and then comes back to the station. So that some of them are very specifically worked out. Um, there's another one which is kind of a it's supposed to be like a dark ride through a bayou. Um, it's kind of taking your culture and, and appropriating it basically. Um, so it's a, a and that, that's I, I don't know. So those but then other ones are just kind of. Like so, there's one called Mission Tranquility: A Salute to Tomorrow's Pioneers. I've no idea what that is. It's something to do with space <laughs> um, and progress, but I don't really know what kind of attraction that would be. <laughs> so much as, but but the, but that name absolutely makes sense. It should, you know, Mission Tranquility. Yeah, I, I I know I know I would get in line for it <laughs> and then assume it would work out well. So yeah, it's a blend really. Some of them are some of them are quite worked out. Some of them are, are just they just seem like the right thing at the right time. Yeah. I, I can't I can't help but wonder if like your kids hear the album are like I want to go to that theme park or something. Well, the dinosaur ones. Um, my six year old is is he's a full on dinosaur kid, um, and he he contributed the the sounds of Archaeopteryxes that he came and and squeaked into a microphone, which did very well. Um, so the, the the dinosaur area of the theme park, there's a right. Oh, there's a ride called Imagosaurus, um, which is, you know, what's an imagine? It's an imaginationosaurus. It's like that, you know, with an exclamation mark. That's very important. Exclamation point, sorry. Um, and he he has a he has that fully worked out, so he knows exactly what happens on that ride, and he would definitely be straight on it. He's, I kind of make him go on roller coasters that he's not quite ready for. That's kind of our relationship. I, I could come on, son. We're gonna 
you you get on that roller coaster. You're one point two meters now. You're allowed. Um, so we, but he, I think he gets a lot out of it. He may be building a, a brewing cauldron of resentment against me, but we'll see. Well, so the other new album is Starfield Lounge. I'm sure it'll come as no great surprise to anyone that the sound is totally different mm-hmm. from. Arcadia Park. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the the sort of the theme that you were going for in that one, and sort of what you were looking to convey in that kind of suite of of songs, which also has kind of like a extended mix associated yeah. with it. Um, so, Stafford Lounge is kind of the end of a process. Of, I got really into Exotica, um, which is the for those that don't know, is the sort of Martin Denny Les Baxter axis of um music made it's not hawaiian music it's music that people in la in the 1960s 1950s and 60s thought hawaiians ought to be listening to which they then invented wholesale and then sold to america which which i do i mean the, the most famous is um the hawaiian war chant which is there are, everyone's covered it which is like and it's this um i think the original words are a kind of not remotely warlike fairly gentle Hawaiian poem about two lovers on a beach, but people who had no idea what it meant, just put it into it, put it into a new tune, called it Hawaiian war chant, added some super insulting verses in which they refer to it as a funny little gay Hawaiian chant. Um, and then, you know, released it to great success in America. Um, but then that spread into, and that's the sort of thing that I, I love that kind of sort of weird musical um, um, cul-de-sac. But that kind of developed into this whole genre of music around Exotica, which was lots of kind of easy listening, but lots of kind of faux tropical. Uh, people would stand around the band doing animal noises and stuff like that. So I got, so I made some stuff like that because I kind of realised I had enough stuff in the in my computer that that, that that sampling and stuff had reached the point where that sort of thing was possible without an orchestra. Um, so I started doing some of that, and then the other thing that kind of goes along with Exotica was this space bachelor sound. Um, which again is is quite similar to Exotica, but usually with this spring reverb on things, and then this sort of sort of sixties special effects, like sci fi special effects. Like um, Leonard Nimoy made albums that sound just like that in the sixties that are great. So I was kind of going for that sound, and then I thought, well, what I really want is to imagine that I'm in a because everything is about escape. All of these things are about not being where I am and being somewhere else instead with my eyes closed. And so I thought, well, if if we had a a if we could do like this extended mix where like you can hear the space station in which the lounge you're sitting in listening to this terrible, easy listening is happening. So I could do that whole thing. And so I've got like kind of alien announcements coming over the tannoy and stuff. And then it kind of the, the, the poorly mixed music then goes over the top. So it kind of sits into the mix so that you can kind of listen to that 20 minutes, hopefully be asleep by the end of it, but then dream about the space station you would be in. So that was kind of the idea there. And I kind of did that thinking, well, I'll just do that and then throw it away for free on the internet, like most things. But then I thought, well, if I'm doing this other album, it can be like a bonus. Um, so instead of just getting like a bonus track, you get a bonus, completely different concept. Oh, um, so, which I think was, and no one really, I don't think I haven't really explained that at all. I just sort of said, yeah, you get a bonus album and then everyone just gets a download and hopefully it's extremely confused. Oh my God. It's like, it's like a Dadaist version of music marketing, you know? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you start anything, eventually it goes that way. I used to do poetry a lot more when I was much younger. And eventually that just got into like trying to write poems that unwrote themselves. You just, eventually it just, I think there's a kind of creative spiral that, ends ends in this sort of postmodern robberus that just eats itself and you end up trying to write poems that where that, that unmake themselves and now I'm just in this and it is it's like sort of, I kind of see music marketing as the art like because 
as as as, as we'll get onto the, the, this the sense in which the the information itself doesn't really have a value or a or a market value anyway, um, and so where you get the scarcity around those things is the is the marketing and so and I think you can view marketing very cynically, but you can also say you know marketing actually can be the art itself if you if you're very uncompromising with it. So and but then you know you, you get locked in a house and it does enter this Dadaist spiral and you end up with um with what on earth I'm doing now. Well, I'm to make a proper album at some point, but we just, we just need to look after the two year old. Well, in light of that, like let's shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about this essay you wrote several years ago now, uh, why your music is worthless and how to sell it anyway, which was hugely influential on me, if maybe no one else, I don't know. Um, but I wonder if you could kind of give us a, a kind of a frame for where that essay came from, because it read to me very much as if it were based on personal experience and personal observation and also personal reflection about kind of where you saw the future of your own recording project going. Um, and it certainly has gone. And so I kind of wonder, like, to what extent was that direction planned? To what extent did you anticipate it? Sort of how do you kind of situate where you were then in relation to where you are now, sort of in light of what you were thinking in that moment? In other words, what were you reacting to that 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 compelled you to write that particular essay at that particular point in time? Okay, um, so I, I grew up a very big fan of... Um, I suppose indie music in Brit- like British indie music. I kind of so I was always you know, there was pre Nirvana. There was a point in sort of the early ni- very early nineties, so nineteen ninety one, where like dance music and indie music kind of didn't have the division they had, and you had these bands like Carter the Unstoppable, Sex Machine, and Ned Stomach Dustbin, and the Wonder Stuff, who I was like very into right at the point where I was like eleven, twelve, just getting into music. And so the first sort of vinyl record I bought was Carter's Thirty Something, and I went and got that, and I. And then, and so, and then a few, and like the next year, Nirvana happened, and then everyone sort of got into Nirvana in this country, and suddenly you're only allowed to be into that. And then Britpop, which is kind of a, a watered down retreading of what happened in the early '90s. But I was always of the very firm opinion that that little bit at the beginning of the '90s was the best bit because that was the time I got into it, obviously. Um, but I believed the kind of unspoken, well, not unspoken, I mean, regularly spoken and sung and shouted, but you know that kind of common assumption among all cool musicians that the music industry was what Prince said it was, which is, you know, just a load of, I don't know how much I can swear, but like, yeah, it was just a load of, it was a load of shit. The music industry was a horrible thing that we could, we would all do better without. And it was there impeding the creativity of the people who I listened to when I was 11 and 12. And I being, I suppose, naive, just believed that they genuinely meant that. And and I kind of took it on board as well. I am going to believe that. And then I didn't really think I could do music but so I was doing poetry and stuff instead. And then Julia grew up somewhere cooler than me. And she was like, she gave me the the impression that actually, no, we could do music. So we after she quit another band, um, she walked out on a record deal because she didn't like the way that they were going. So we started the Indelicates thinking, well, we, we can do this. But I still believe all the stuff I believed in 1992, which is that the purpose of this is to <coughs> is to do it in, in opposition to the man and the music industry and they're in the way. But that was kind of 2005 2006 and it was still like not really done that you just did things independently altogether so we did um we, we were putting things on the internet we wrote a song about well it's kind of it was about pete doherty and it was called waiting for pete doherty to die and at the time people used to write us hate mail going would you want to kill pete doherty and we'd be explained that it wasn't about how we wanted to kill pete doherty it was about how um 
the media was was, was was trying to make him die in order to fulfill their own sinister ends. And that was kind of disgusting. We were addressing that secretly. We did want to kill him. Not really. Um, but, you know, we, we wrote this song, we put it on the internet and that kind of did well. And Neil Gaiman heard it and retweeted it. And that was nice. And so we kind of picked up some speed and we got some record companies started coming to things. And we ended up signing for an actual advance with a record company. And that was like pretty much the last year that anyone did that because they just stopped giving advances to people after that. Um, you know, we made a record and we went to South by Southwest and we did all this stuff. And then all the time it was just like, well, the, the record company is behaving exactly as I always assumed they would. And I de facto hate them, even though they're nice people, you know, that fundamentally hate everything they do and I hate their opinions. And, and so I'm going to make a fuss about it. So we went on stage at South by Southwest and I was like, I said, I think I said, um, oh, I hear there's a lot of scouts in the room. That's nothing. My uncle was a scout master. <laughs> And they were just because, like South by Southwest, people thought that was a festival, but it's not. It's a conference for the industry, and it was like people were just sort of staring at you, going, "Well, I don't think I can sell this." So I just, you know, I was just telling everyone to download it illegally because everyone was talking about pirates, and I would say that on stage, and everyone was getting cross with me. But that was why people liked us. So I was like, well, "I don't know why you're, I don't know why you're annoyed with that record company because that's the only reason people were interested in the first place." But you know, they get annoyed anyway. That was like 2008. Then the record industry hit its major kind of slump because of well they claimed because of piracy it wasn't really because of piracy it was because of what we'll get into but suddenly you couldn't make money the record companies weren't making any money our record company decided to just wind up i don't think they actually went out of business but you know they they stopped trading and you know let us have most of our stock which was very nice of them considering um and it was like and we were in a situation where you know we weren't signed anymore and we were kind of like well we can just sort of start up trying to get signed again and then you sort of think but then we were just thinking about it i was like well do we want to do that or is this or is it the case that you you really don't need to do that now i mean because what actual benefit is there to being signed and so we kind of thought well let's just not you know we didn't think of it that clearly but we thought let's just instead let's start a record company but the basis of the record company will be that anyone can sign themselves um you don't have to ask permission you just upload your music and then you're signed to our record company and you can put that on your press release and you, if you can you can claim where you're a company and that's fine so we, we we worked with a our friend paul who was more doing code and so he sort of built this back end and basically we invented bandcamp and i think probably about the same week that bandcamp invented bandcamp but whereas we were like we're going to invent a thing that fucks everything up and ruins and ruins the music industry and that'll show everyone bandcamp were like we're going to make a lot of money (laughs) so they did rather better (laughs) with the same product whereas ours was just kind of like we're trying to be cool and they were like we're not we're not trying to be cool (laughs) we're just trying to you know succeed um but you know it it was so it was kind of that same week so we, we kind of we both we launched ours they launched theirs and we did it to promote our album and released an album ourselves on that um and everything was like pay what you like and and you could like i say anyone could use the same platform and just sign themselves up if they wanted to um and it it all just worked much better than i think we kind of hoped it was like you know we were not because at no point have we been a successful famous band really you know we've been um it's, it's annoying but like at no point have we been in any way like on a big scale you know we've, we've done a few like we, we got our biggest i think we were sort of like second stage at a lower order european festival headline that was pretty much the level but, but never really above that but 
whereas all the bands who were significantly more successful than us were making no money and living in bed sets and, and achieving nothing and then giving up. I mean, that was the main thing. They would all just give up and they'd, they'd lose their record companies as the record companies went bankrupt and then they'll just go and get jobs. And we were like, well, we're, we're, we somehow, despite having nowhere near as many fans or anywhere near as much success, are managing to keep this going by just like making stuff that people want and then kind of selling it for more money than just a CD's worth of money and then giving a lot of stuff away for free. And that seemed to be working pretty well for us. Uh, and then at some point, I can't remember exactly when I wrote that essay, but at some point I thought I should write this down because <laughs> this seems interesting. Um, and so I wrote down everything I thought about it. And it, it and I think it did, it, I think, um, I don't think any other law professors taught it in a module, but it did, it did. A lot of people shared and clicked on it and generally it was a positive reception to it. Um, and I think it was, I do think it was mostly right. I did look over it again, knowing I was going to do this. And I think I was mostly right about what I said in it. The one thing that's not really in it at all is streaming, which has completely changed everything again since. So, so yeah, that's, that's the, that's the lengthy context of, of where that came from. Yeah. I mean, so for me, what I really love about your essay <clears throat> is that it's a really kind of plain spoken introduction to the difference between uh, a economics of scarcity and an economics of abundance. And just saying it that way sort of illustrates why it's such a problem that from an academic standpoint, we tend to say that in really complicated ways, whereas you say it in really straightforward, approachable, understandable ways. But the key concept is really, as you put it in your, in your piece, that neither art nor music is rare, right? And because it's not rare, it doesn't have the sort of scarcity value that we associate with other kinds of, of, of products. Um, and th- but what, what it really ba- boils down to me is sort of a reflection on what exactly it is that you're selling when you're selling music, which in a lot of ways seems like you're, at the end of the day, kind of selling yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, you create scarcity, the scarcity, like, okay, so just to go, go back to, to go over that again, music isn't rare, I mean, it's demonstrably not rare, because if you walk down the street, people are whistling, and music comes out of everywhere, and, you know, if you, if you, I mean, if you walk on the correct, the right surface, it makes notes, I mean, music, the, the idea of, like, there is rhythmical information that improves the background of your life, that's just not something that's remotely scarce, I mean, the, the very idea that it is, 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 is crazy, and I suppose people would then say, well, yeah, but, but talent and good music is scarce, and I was like, well, I'm not sure that it is, and I think, oh, you look at people who are, I mean, I, I suppose, like, Michael Jackson's fairly unusual, but if Michael Jackson had been born in um, you know, in Eritrea in the in the 16th century, it wouldn't make any difference that he was really good at like beatboxing funk to himself into a into a four track. It would make no difference. It's particularly a weird circumstance that you get Michael Jackson. But at the same time, most people who are at the very top of music are not doing anything that probably half of the girls in the school in your school couldn't do. Like you kind of it's it's being able to sing isn't rare. Being able to sing is probably 25 percent of people can probably sing well enough to be with modern production techniques to be the, the biggest music act in the world for a couple of months, it, it doesn't take much. So it isn't rare. And if we're, if we're working on the basis that the, the value and the price of things is derived from scarcity, which I think we kind of inevitably are, then you look at that situation. I've kind of gone off this answer a little bit, I think, but um, you kind of, when you look at that, you're in a situation of what is being sold and it is much more the fame and the person who's making it and the things around it those are the things that are scarce. And 
there was a whole industry, the music industry built up around justifying the fact that what they did was scarce, which is they had access to the pressing plants and there weren't many of them and they had access to shops and there weren't many of them. But when you change that situation and distribution of music is free, which it is if you have an internet connection, then you have to find where the scarcity is. And so what the music industry does, and at the time, what the music industry was doing was having talent shows on television. So there'd be the X Factor. And at the end of the X Factor or Pop Stars, The Rivals or whatever it was, they would they would say, you can now buy the single, buy this person you've spent months getting invested in and forming a personal relationship with. Um, and now you can go and buy their single. So people would run out and buy the single, but they weren't buying the single because they liked the music. They were buying the single because they liked the person. So what was scarce and what the the good was in economic terms was the way that you felt about that guy from the television. So I suppose if there was an insight, a practical insight, it was you can do that with the internet as well. You can do that for free. You can be friends with people. You can come up with interesting stuff. You can, you know, Things like things like the were kind of peripheral in the eighties and nineties, like artwork and you know coloured vinyl and all this stuff. That's now the central thing. That's the only thing you've got that is of value at all in what you're offering. So focus on that. Like if you know that, you can focus on that. You can make you can make yourself into something that is. And, it's, it's, I, and it, I suppose it's it's basically branding, but it's a, a way of looking at branding in a way that's saying, well, it's, it's not branding in the kind of cynical something it's not branding that bill hicks would hate it's cool but it's like because bill hicks you know famously the guy who would, would do these endless rants about advertising negatives and branding but why do you buy a bill hicks cd it's because of the brand of bill hicks and like but i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that it's not even a cynical thing to say it's just a recognition that, that these things have light and dark sides and there's a way of artistically approaching um branding and marketing so that that in itself becomes a worthwhile artistic praxis i'm going to say praxis i've said praxis now I, I can't believe I said praxis. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because my friend Ed Timberlake, a, a trademark lawyer, always says that trademark is the most poetic form of intellectual property because the consumers participate in the creation of its meaning. And it seems to me that's a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've not, that's, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I suppose and I'm tra- what I'm trying to get to is why why I thought that this kind of branding is because I, because I've got an, an instinctive sort of hatred of the whole idea of marketing and branding. And I, I think why, how is, how is what I'm talking about different? But I think, I think there is a sense of like, it's the creation of a valuable idea and a set of ideas that are, are worth something to people. Cause I mean, that's why I'm, I'm very, I don't like people. What I hate is when people do sort of crowdfunding and stuff. And the thing you can buy is like, Oh, you know, you can, you can come backstage at our show and you can meet us. And it's like, you know, all right, mate, <laughs> you don't need to be, it's not that impressive to meet you, but that, that kind of branding I really dislike and that kind of like cult of personality stuff. It's much more about, you know, like the, the extended universe and the, 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 the artwork and the, the, the feel of it. And like, well, you know, with the Arcadia Park stuff, even it's like you know, creating something where there is a a, a a mythological idea you can buy into, and it surrounds and it surrounds the music. And I don't necessarily think that that's a lesser part of the music. I don't think that's a lesser part of the artistic product. I think it's all part of one whole package, and that whole package has value. It's not just it's not just a question of branding music. It's a question of the whole thing being something that is worth. It's a a mimetic. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit unclear about it. As I say, I think it's because things have changed in the last since I wrote that, and it's it, things move on. But I still think that basic idea is fine that you, you make things that are worth buying, and those things aren't necessarily just tracks. Those things are are a whole package of, of ideas and spiraling meanings that that are interesting. So, in light of that. The the essay really, in some ways, reads as kind of like a prospectus for kind of the future of you know your your project with with Julia and in kind of music project more more generally. Um, and like any prospectus, I assume that sort of it responds to sort of circumstances that present themselves afterward, both technological change and also kind of realizations about sort of how that sort of framework fat actually maps onto the market that that you're operating in sort of were there any surprises or changes that you kind of incorporated in the years since you sort of set out that path for yourself that have in it kind of inflected the way that you were thinking in that moment well i mean there's been a, par- a paradigm shift so i mean the, the paradigm when i wrote that was you sold digital mp3s to people using i mean i mean itunes being the 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 hegemon but then um you know we would sell them from corporate records or you know you'd, you'd sell people would buy would pay money to download tracks and then play them and that's now something which is very much not true um because of streaming and spotify and honestly i think that's been a really tough thing to respond to because i don't I, I i don't like the criticism of it that it's like well they don't pay enough because what they pay is above the market rate for the things that they charge for i mean they are people are the the, people are still spending about i say 10 pounds so but yeah probably 12 15 dollars a year a month people who like music probably spend 12 to 15 dollars a month on music they always did do that they did that in the 80s where they would buy one cd a month they did that in the 90s where they'd buy one cd a month then in the 2000s they some of them saved that money altogether and stopped but most people still spent that money what they would do is pirate landfill um they would they would you know everyone's 11th favorite band did terribly out of piracy because that wasn't the album that you'd buy um so you know you go and you'd, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's difficult not to be horrible you'd basically you'd you'd pirate travis <laughs> but but you'd buy our record you know because not many people liked us but those that did we were like their favorite so you, people would buy our record and then they pirate music i hate so yeah i mean exactly you know and well, me too, you know, like everyone, because my amount of spending didn't go down. I spent about the same amount of music. I just had, there was more music, the, the, the supply exploded. Um, so I kind of thought the, the, the way that piracy operates, it was terrible for the music industry, but it was good for consumers. And I think it was good for good artists or like interesting artists, maybe not good, but like interesting artists, artists who had the ability to be someone's favorite band did well from that whole thing. So there was that, but then now streaming it's kind of like their their proposition has been that ten to fifteen dollars you spent on music every month, give it to us. Um, and for that, you can not only have all the music in our catalogue, but you can feel good about yourself too because you're doing good and you're supporting music. But what you're really supporting is you know the music industry because that's what Spotify is. It's the record industry. Um, it, it's that demonic entity with its new face. Um, so they pay artists. It's hard to say poorly because they still pay artists the market value for the music, but like there's there's not much discrimination. It doesn't. It's not very. It's not very. It's got no taste the way that that music is rewarded. Um, so I kind of dislike it because it because of its centralization. Um, 
I feel kind of the same about Bandcamp, but that's mainly jealousy because of you know them coming up with the same idea and doing it more successfully than us. Um, but but I don't like the idea that you have to that you get a Bandcamp and that, that that's been a, that that's been branded that like the act of putting MP3s on the internet and then using getting people to pay for them with PayPal that that's something that now has a brand and is has become this corporate verb that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna Bandcamp that record and it's like. Oh mate, you could have just sold it on the internet, and so I re- you know, refused to get one because you know I have I don't need Bandcamp to do that. I can I can code that myself. You know, I, there's no reason to. Um, there is there are WordPress plugins that do that, where you don't have to pay anyone. Um, I wish I didn't have to pay PayPal's middleman fees, but really those are the only middleman fees I still feel obliged to pay. So, so, so that's been difficult. Um, but I think what what streaming has replaced in my original prospectus is the the kind of it's it, in a way it's just it's monetized the free people and the challenge has been to get people the people who were going to pay to still pay um and the way that i always said that you should do that is not by getting them to pay because they love you but get them to pay because you're selling them something that's worth the money and i don't think that has necessarily changed so much it's just become a bit more difficult because people don't feel innately guilty all the time um so, but you can you can still say to someone, you know, like we we're going to spend, we're going to make vinyl. You have to pre-order it in advance because if you don't pre-order it, we can't make it. So the the responsibility for ensuring its creation is tra- financially transferred to the customer. And I think that's I think that's a, that in itself is a very scarce thing because you're saying you're selling. I think I say this in the essay, but you're selling a share in the world where that thing exists. And if you don't buy it in sufficient quantities, that world will not exist. So that's an innately valuable proposition. And I think that's still true because you you sell things. I I think you kind of, I think the response to streaming that I've done is to privilege people who buy it above the streaming. So the streaming is like an afterthought. So it's like when Arcadia, Arcadia Park's not out, Arcadia Park will come out officially in a couple of months, but everyone I really kind of care for has heard it already because they they paid for the cds which was strictly limited because it's quite a weird proposition but like it will come out on spotify and stuff in a few months and you know that and it feel, i feel like it has to do that because you know it's not really out officially if it doesn't but that would be like a shrug it's like you know okay the the the, the art is done i've sent out the cds i've, I've made the art the art is done and now I, I release it and it can go be free and if, and if people if they want to send me a few pence every every six months for that, then, you know, fine, <laughs> whatever. It's kind of, it's, it's almost like you kind of, you have to treat Spotify as beneath what you're doing. That can't be the focus. And and I think so much, I'm, I'm, I'm talking too much there, but so much of the focus on around Spotify, so much of the market that exists is this secondary market of people selling technology to bands. Um, so people make music and then and the second you, you type anything into Google that suggests you're in a band, you're inundated with, hey, you can pay us to like boost your Spotify collective to like guys and we're going to put it on playlists. And and all of these things are things where you pay other people and none of them are things where anyone pays you. So I kind of feel like that whole market is just, it's just off there on its own. And still the thing that hasn't changed is that you, you have to make this package of art and you have to make that package of art into something valuable and sell that and then the streaming just has to you know we just deal with that once that's over with um which is and i say i think streaming has made that harder um not easier but it hasn't really destroyed it so i think it's still true well so simon in in closing i wonder if you could say a little something about what what you're planning to work on next because i can only imagine that there's another project on your mind 
Um, there are there are two. So um, I wrote a musical. Um, it's uh, basically it's Paradise Lost in the style of an Elvis movie, um, which you see. <laughs> This is something I've been I've been doing this in various forms for years. I, I realized that Paradise Lost had the same plot as an Elvis movie when I was like twenty one, and it was like this. It was a huge revelation. It's like this is it's it's Dirty Dancing and Paradise Lost are the same story. It's like it's you know couple and then charismatic outsider comes in and leads girl astray, and as a result, social orders collapse and change. And it's this, and, and Paradise Lost is the point in English literature where um, where cool evil happens. Like you can, up until that point, evil is usually like ridiculous or like f- fat and pustulous, and, and it's like, oh, there's the comedy devil who's come to like get tricked out of um, drowning the wheeled by old women with candles. That was the devil up until Paradise Lost, and then Milton's like, how about how, what if the devil was just like cool, <laughs> like and really sexy and stuff, and like, and since then that's been this huge archetype in culture, and, and Elvis being the um, the apotheosis of it. So um, I rewrote. Paradise Lost, but it's kind of like an Elvis musical, and um, we've we did it. We've done it for a few years before the pandemic. We were kind of doing it. We, we did a fairly successful fringe show in Brighton, we it, which got very good reviews, and we were kind of like, yeah, we're gonna take this and we're gonna run with it. And then they were like, stay in your house. So we're like, okay, we're not gonna do that. But we finally we recorded the um, drums for it just before, actually, as the pandemic was kicking off. We had um, the professor, who's the drummer from David Vaughn's Spirit Wife, came and said he'd come and do the drums. So he, was, he was set up on my landing. And then when he arrived, he was in quite a good mood because he had loads of work as a photographer lined up for that year. And then by the end of the day, everyone had cancelled and the world was closed. So he sort of left in a, in a, in a bad mood and I put the, the drum files away. But this last weekend we've gone and recorded the vocals for it. So that hopefully is coming soon, a, a cast recording of that musical. Um and then there is an Indelicates album which is kind of mostly written, which is sort of it's kind of about um what's well, called Avenue QAnon. Um and it's kind of a it's not quite sort of not quite as concert album as David Korish, but it is that that kind of way and it's just kind of just going through a lot of um it's, I, I wanted to be very kind about the people who ended up believing in QAnon. I think there's, there's I think it was really, it's really interesting. Like Roseanne being, there's a whole song about Roseanne, who I found like fascinating when she, she kind of, when she started tweeting all that mad racism stuff, and everyone was just like, well, she's just being racist. But she wasn't just being racist; she was being racist because of this insane conspiracy theory that she'd fallen into. And like, there's a, a little Vice um, little mini documentary on YouTube you can watch where she's just sort of sat there staring at the sea just looking very puzzled at what's happened. And it's just like, I don't know, I, I, I like, I, I, it's kind of exploring all that stuff. There's some songs that we have ready to ready to record that we're working on. So at some point, we were hoping we would get that done this year, but that's looking increasingly unlikely just because of finding time with children and stuff. But that will be more of a me and Julia properly working together and not just me being strange in an attic. Well, I'm dying to hear both of them and uh, love the new albums. Uh, Still a huge fan of the essay, which I think was really prescient in a lot of ways. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to come and talk to me today. Of course. Anytime. Thanks so much, Brian. Take flight over sea or land 
From the break of dawn to the dark of night We're flying high Chasing our dreams across the sky Thing 